right, so Ruth chapter 4. But before we read Ruth chapter 4, every week we've done this, like the, you know, kind of previously on Ruth, um, right? So we're just going to kind of walk through that. I recognize not all of us have been here for every week, and even if you have, you know, five weeks ago was a long time, um, right? So just kind of, we're just going to give the, the, the bare bones of where we've been so far. So Ruth chapter 1, um, Ruth chapter 1 is all about suffering. Yay, isn't that fun, right? You're like, Ruth chapter four, 1 is all about suffering, and what we find is is two people specifically, you find a whole family really, but but specifically our story begins to focus then in on two people, Ruth and Naomi, but two people uh, who have experienced immense suffering. That basically the last 10 years of their life, in many ways, have been a living hell. They have experienced deep suffering. And Naomi, she claims, she, she feels like in her lives, that in her life, that God has raised his fist against her. That's what she says. She says, God has raised his fist against me. Is that true? Well, if we know the story of Ruth, we know, no, that's not true. But you know what? I think we can, we, you know, what we talked about is that often we can, we can understand where, Na- where Naomi may be coming from. Maybe you felt like that. Maybe you've had those feelings. And it's that reminder then that even in the midst of suffering, God is at work. That God has not raised his fist against you, but that God loves you and cares for you. And even in the brokenness of our world, God can bring good. So that's what we talked about the first week. We, we talked about how, you know, it's understandable. Naomi is crushed. Ruth is crushed. She's lost her husband. It's been 10 years. She's had no children in a society where that was an enormous deal right? She's had no children. And now they go back to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem because there had been a famine, but now the famine's over and they go back broken for Naomi at least. See, I told you this doesn't work great. Naomi and Naomi goes back a broken woman. Right, she says to the people in, to the to the people in Bethlehem, I left full and now I have come back and I am empty. I am empty. Naomi is crushed. But what we find is Ruth make this powerful statement before, because Ruth is not an Israelite. It's in the story. Ruth is a Moabite, which um, we're not going to get into that, but they were, the, they were the enemies of Israel. They were the enemies of Israel. And so what we find in, in Ruth is this powerful proclamation that Ruth makes. She says, your people will be my people, Your God will be my God. She makes this commitment to follow God. She would not have previously been a follower of God. She would not have been raised that way or anything like that. But now she commits herself to God. In the midst of suffering, she leans into God and she brings Naomi along with her. And so while chapter 1 focuses on suffering, chapter 2 reminds us of God's grace and of God's kindness. That through Boaz, we see God's generosity and grace. This guy, Boaz, comes along. Right? Ruth enters into his field to try and get, glean some grain. And he shows incredible generosity and kindness to Ruth and Naomi. And through him, we begin to see the generosity and grace of God. That this is how God deals with his people. Unexpectedly generous. God cares even for those of us who feel unimportant, unloved, 
unwelcome, undeserving, and seemingly insignificant. And then we jumped into chapter 3, and we focused on how faith and action go hand in hand. We see Ruth, who has become somebody who seems to have a, a, a faith at least some faith that's willing to reach out and cling to God, some sort of faith, and, and she, she moves in the direction of, of trying to get Boaz to marry her, to take care of their family. And so we focused on how faith and action go hand in hand. Faith, we talked about, is often formed in the cauldron of difficulty and silence, that when God feels silent, because that's one of the things in the book of Ruth, God does not speak in the book of Ruth. And our narrator very rarely mentions God. Our characters may mention God, but our narrator very rarely mentions God. What we find is that faith is often formed in that cauldron of difficulty and silence when faith is all you have left to cling to. And we talked about how God is chesed that he is loving, that he is kind, that he is generous, that he is faithful. That's what that Hebrew word it encompasses all of that within the framework of covenant. In other words, God has promised and he will uphold his end of the deal. And as we as God's people live lives that are marked by chesed, loving kindness and loyalty and faith, love, that we show what the world what God is like. And then we come to last week, and in the first half, in part one of chapter four, we saw how Ruth is really a book all about redemption. We talked about how the word redeemed or redeemer or redeem shows up nine times in this chapter, nine times, which tells us when words are repeated a lot in a short story, that's a theme, right? Nine times in the chapter. We spoke about how we all want redemption in our lives, that we desire redemption. And that's what we see. We see Boaz redeem Ruth and Naomi. Now, again, we're flying over this really fast. If you've missed the whole series, I would encourage you, read the book of Ruth. It's a beautiful story. Go back. You can listen to the podcast. You know, you can go back and listen to the sermons where maybe some of the stuff I'm saying is confusing if you haven't been here, right? So you can go and, and unpack that a little bit more. But this this idea that we all want redemption in our lives and we can trust that God wants to redeem you too, and me too. We talked about the need for forgiveness, to forgive the so-and-sos in our lives for the hurt that they've brought to us and not let them define our story. We learn that we can trust God when we're betrayed, that we can trust that God hears our prayers and answers them, and that we can trust God even when we don't understand his timing. And so here we are now in the final week, the last half of chapter four. And this morning, I want to talk about three things really, primarily. I want to circle back around to God's sovereignty. I want to talk about God's sovereignty, God's provision, and God's fullness. Those are the three things that I, 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 want, to, I want to chat about this morning. But first, let's, let's read Ruth chapter 4. All right, let's, let's read. We'll just start at the, at the second half. So at verse 13, we'll start at verse 13. 
Again, I would encourage you, go back, read the whole story in its context and everything. It's, it's a beautiful story. But Ruth chapter 4, starting in verse 13. And we read the first part of verse 13 last week as well, which says, So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. Right? So Boaz and Ruth have gotten married. They are now together. And then all of a sudden, in the, in a flink, in the flink, in the blink, that's what happens when you have a flash and a blink. It's a flink. Uh, yeah, yeah. In, in the blink of an eye, in, the, in the, you know, the dot of a sentence, in the period of a sentence, all of a sudden we've, we've gone nine months forward. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. We have now traveled nine months into the future in our story. So nine months later, Ruth has given birth to a son. Verse 14, then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer, that's number nine, a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast. And she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, Now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. This is the genealogical record of their ancestor Perez. What an anticlimactic way to end the story, right? Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. Now, for us, it feels like an anticlimactic ending to the story. But if you're a Jew and you come to the end there, you go, oh, David, I know him. He's kind of an important character in my history, right? And for those of us who are Christians, he's an important part of our history too now, right? Okay, so it's actually not an anticlimactic ending to the story. It actually kind of adds a bit more context to the story that makes it all the more meaningful, particularly when we get to Matthew chapter 1, where we find the genealogy of Jesus, okay? Um, but let's just kind of, let's just, let's talk a little bit about here. There's, there's a couple of things. I, I just want to point out really briefly that the women of the city named, named Obed. That's not normal. Just heads up. That's weird. Now, it's not going to be a point in the sermon or anything like that. Just, just so you know, that's, that's odd. That's one of those, like, if you're, again, if you're a Jew living in this time, reading the story, you'd be like, huh, that's weird. That doesn't happen. Okay, so... There you go, just a, just a, a little thing there. All right. Um, also, I just want to note, last week I said we were going to, uh, we were going to unpack the two blessings that, come, that, we, that we read last week. I'm actually not going to do that for all of our sakes because of time. Um, I was already looking at my sermon going, I better be careful. So um, if you have questions about that, again, we can talk about that after the sermon. I'd be happy to walk you through through those blessings, okay? But we'll probably just focus on the third blessing that we have in our passage today. So let's talk about, though, the first point that I said I wanted to speak about, and that is God's um, sovereign hand. 
God's sovereign hand. Because I think we see it not only in in the passage that we just read, but I think we see it throughout the book of Ruth. And so what we're going to do as we talk about this is we're going to like, we're going to bring the whole book of Ruth into this because I think what we find is the climax of the story here, the the ending of the story. And so it's like, we're going to bring the whole story together, or at least we're going to attempt, I'm going to attempt to bring the whole story uh, together. But I think we see God's sovereign hand. What we see is that when everything feels broken, I think it is hard to trust that God is sovereign. Am I right? When you're in those points in life, those low points where everything just feels hard, where life feels like it's unraveling, or even there, maybe life isn't unraveling. Maybe it's just a difficult period where it's just, it's hard to see how God is sovereign. Maybe we look around at the world that we live in sometimes and the brokenness of our world, and it's hard to see how God is sovereign. But one of the things I think we see throughout the book of Ruth, and this ending I think shows us, is that though in the moment we may not see it, God plays the long game. God plays the long game. So, so what may be happening in the moment, God may be allowing the brokenness and the, and the things to happen in this world, but God ultimately is working things for good. We see that in the story of Ruth, and I think we see it in the story of Jesus, and I think even bigger, like in the meta, like we see it in the story of the Bible, right? When you get to Revelation, you see God has been working all things out for good. And so we see God's sovereign hand at work. What we see in Ruth is how everything has been working in the background through the free choices of individuals. God has been working in the background, right? If we remember back to to week two, chapter two, we came to that phrase, and chance chanced upon, or it just so happened, or like, or wouldn't you know it, like, right? And we see these kind of coincidences that happen throughout the book that by the time we get to the end of the book, we realize those were never coincidences, God's sovereign hand. God is so sovereign that he works through the free choices of human beings. We see the sovereign hand of God. And so while sometimes we don't always know or see how God is at work in our lives, we can trust that he is at work. And I think that's one of the things, one of the main themes that the book of Ruth teaches us is to trust, to be able to trust that God is indeed at work in your life. Even when it's hard to see it, even when it's hard to trust. I find that at least in my life, it's usually not until hindsight really that I can see how God has really been working in my life. Like, do you guys feel that? Do you, do you experience that? Like, you know, I think that's like Ruth and Naomi. It's like when they hand Naomi that baby, right? When they hand her Obed and she is holding that baby, you better believe at that moment, I think like Naomi sees, oh, I can see now how God has been working in my life. Do you think she saw it through that 10 years of misery? Do you think she saw it when she arrived in Bethlehem and she just felt broken and empty I'm not sure that she saw it straight away when Ruth just so happened to end up in Boaz's field, but she came home with some good amount of grain. But I think she's starting to get that. Maybe God is at work in my life. And I think so often you and I are that way. We go through our lives, we live our lives, we're asking that question. God, I just wish you would work in my life. And then it's like, all of a sudden, a few years later, we go, oh, well, 
okay, there it is. I see how God was at work in my life. I see how God moved things along or orchestrated things through my free choices, through the free choices of others, through my stupidity, through my, you know, through even there, maybe a good choice once in a while I do make, you know, like, you know, like that sort of thing where it's like, you can see how God has been moving things along. That is the sovereignty of God. That is how sovereign he is. You are not a puppet that God is like, you know, up there doing, like, he can use the choices, both good and bad, that you make to move things towards his end. That is the incredible, unbelievable sovereignty of the God that we worship. God's sovereign hand is at work. And so what I think we see in Ruth is sort of this, this satellite view. And this is why I think it's so helpful. We get this satellite view that God is at work, of how God is at work in all kinds of circumstances. And how God is at work all through, or through all different kinds of people to accomplish his will and his goals in the world. And so guys, when you're in that moment, I want you to be able to come back to Ruth. To be able to go, okay, to be able, I should enunciate sometimes, to be able to go, okay, God, I don't trust you, or I don't trust, well, maybe, maybe to be honest like that, to say, God, I, right now I don't see it. I don't see how you're working. But I know when I read Ruth, I see how you treated her and Naomi. I see how ultimately, even though they suffered a great deal and they went through a, bunch of, a lot of tragedy, I see how you still were at work in their lives. And I know that you love me as much as you love Ruth and as much as you love Naomi. And so I trust that you're at work. That when our faith is broken, when our lives are broken, we can come back to the book of Ruth and take comfort, find peace. And how we see God partnering with normal people and here's one of the things I think we see in Ruth again with God's sovereign hand is that God moves his will and his purposes through normal people. Right? Like there's nothing inherently special about Naomi or nothing inherently special about Ruth or about Boaz. Like Boaz is a normal farmer who, who loves God and follows him. Ruth is a Moabite who wasn't all that welcome when she arrived, right? Because we find, like, Boaz kind of says, like, I'm glad you didn't find other people's fields because who knows what would have happened to you, right? She's an ordinary person who has made a commitment to following God. And so we see God partner with normal people who are willing to live for him. And what happens? They bring a pocket of peace, of shalom into the world, right? Because remember in Ruth chapter 1, verse 1, it says that this took place in the time of the judges. And again, I have brought this up. If you've read Judges at all, you know it is an absolute mess, a mire of muck, what is going on in Israel at that time. It's a terrible place. It is a place that is not marked by peace, it is marked by anything but peace, but shalom, right? Completeness or wholeness of life or the good life that we desire. It is, you know, the whole point of the, of, of the book of Judges is to show how the people of Israel just became like everybody else. And the everybody else in their time were not real nice people. 
not, you know, like child sacrifice, things like that. You know, like, it's like that sort of, like, that's the idea to say, these people were supposed to be different, but they, they became just like everybody else. But we get to the book of Ruth, and now we find out there were still some people that brought pockets of peace, of shalom in Israel, that were still following God and still experiencing His goodness and His peace. And so the question started working in my head. is like, how can we be people of peace in our world. You know, there's lots of, you know, I think sometimes I was thinking about this the other day because this is what I do. I reflect on things probably too much. But anyway, I was, I was sitting there thinking about the fact that often I stand up here and I complain about our world that we live in. There's a lot of really good things about our world, okay? Like just before I complain. Um, <laughs> No, there are, a lot, there are. There's a lot of wonderful things about the world that we live in, okay? And we could talk about that, and I, you know, at some point it'll probably come up and we can, we can go there. But yet, at, our, at the same time, we know our world is marked by brokenness. There is so much brokenness in our world. For all the good, there's, still, there's just a lot of brokenness. And yet, I think you and I, as followers of Jesus can bring a pocket of peace. Like what Ruth and Boaz and Naomi experienced, what the people of Bethlehem experienced through them. We can bring a pocket of peace to our world that desperately desires and seeks peace. So I was thinking about how can we be that pocket of peace in a broken world? And now as I keep saying pocket of peace out loud, it's annoying me. Um, So if you can think of, you know, whatever... That like, I'll just keep saying, pocket of peace. That's what I wrote down. I'm not going to be able to think of anything else. So I apologize if it annoys you too. Um, Maybe the better, how can we be people of peace in a broken world? Well, as we look at Ruth, right? One of the things that, that Ruth, it's said about Ruth is that she is a virtuous person. She is a virtuous woman. And right, we mentioned like the connection between that like the story of Ruth in Proverbs 31 that right in the in the Hebrew Bible that this comes out like Ruth comes after Proverbs and Proverbs 31 is the last chapter in Proverbs and it's all about the virtuous woman that's what it's called like the Proverbs you know sometimes in Christianese you know people are like the Proverbs 31 woman right and it but it 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 shows like this godly woman what it looks like to be a, a, a godly woman right and what we see is that Ruth exemplifies all of that. And really, primarily, I think, through her faithfulness. Ruth embodies, as a foreigner, so much better than most of the Israelites of that time did. Ruth embodies what Jesus says are the two greatest commandments, right? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's Ruth. That's exactly what we see her doing. And you guys, if we want to be people of peace in this world, start there. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if we do that, if we live that way, we will begin to bring peace into our world, into our friendships, into our, into our families, into the strangers that we come across. All right? So it starts there with faithfulness. And one of the things I was thinking, too, is how do we be people of peace in the broken world? We need wisdom. And I think we see that in, in, in Boaz. 
Because wisdom is not just knowledge. It's not just knowing something. It's like knowledge and experience together, right? You can know all the right things to do and still be an incredibly unwise person. But it's when we bring that experience as well into it, how to apply the knowledge that we have in the world, that it begins to become wisdom, right? And I was thinking about this, the wisdom of Boaz. And, and this falls under the, the umbrella of the sovereignty of God. All right, so let's go to the genealogy quick. Because here's what it says in our genealogy. We'll start in verse 20. Amenadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz. Boaz is the father of Obed. Stop there. Salmon. Not only is that a strange name, it's also an interesting character. All right? Salmon is Boaz's dad, but he's also the husband of Rahab. Does anyone know the story of, uh, of Rahab? Okay? We read the story of Rahab in the book, uh, in the book of Exodus. Not Exodus. In the book of Joshua. We read the story in the book of Joshua. As the people are preparing to take the promised land, they go to a city called Canaan. And maybe you've heard of the story of Canaan in like kids' church or something. Maybe, possibly, right? They march around the city seven times and then walls fall down, all that sort of thing. Well, when the spies go to check out the land of Canaan, before they go to take it, there is a woman living in this city, uh, in, in, this, in the city of Jericho, sorry, the land of Canaan, the city of Jericho, and her name is Rahab. And she houses these spies and she asks that they spare her life and, and when the battle happens and the walls fall down and everything, Rahab is spared and she gives herself, she becomes part of the people of Israel. She becomes a faithful Israelite and she marries a guy named Salmon. And then Salmon and Rahab give birth to Boaz. So here's the thing I want us to see. In God's sovereignty, in God's sovereignty, Boaz's mom wasn't an Israelite. Boaz's mom was a foreign woman. And do you know what Boaz knew and experienced over and over? Is that a foreign woman can be just as godly as any, any other woman in that, uh, that, that is an Israelite, or more so. And I think, like, to me, that part of the genealogy just shouts the sovereignty of God. Because it just so happens that the one relative who could redeem Ruth had a mom who wasn't an Israelite. To me, like, I remember the first time I read that, like, it was like one of those like, mind-blowing like, headaches. You're like, what? No way! Boaz saw firsthand what a non-Israelite woman who wanted to follow God could be like. And so when he meets Ruth, he doesn't seem to have any problem whatsoever with marrying her. No issues. Because he sees who she is and he knows what she could be. He has wisdom. He knows how a foreign woman can be just as godly or more so and have just as much faith or more than any Israelite woman. And so, Rahab 
gave birth to Boaz. Boaz married Ruth, and they gave birth to Obed. And if we go to Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, we won't do it, but if we were to go there, what you would find as you follow Matthew chapter 1 is that in the end, you have Obed, who then gives birth to, who gives birth to, who gives birth to, who gives birth to Jesus. The line of Jesus. Ruth is in the line of David, and because she is in the line of David, she is in the line of Jesus. Through Ruth, an ordinary woman, a foreign woman, the last woman you would expect as you read the Bible to have a book of the Bible named after her because she's foreign, she's not, you know, she's a Moabite, she's from Israel's enemies, all this kind of stuff. She ends up, she ends up, through her, God would rescue the world. It's incredible. The sovereignty of God at work. God doesn't mind dealing with people who aren't Israelites, right? Like we see that in the Old Testament. God doesn't mind. What he wants is people who have a contrite heart, who come to him in faith and desire to follow him. That's what he wants. And so faithfulness and wisdom, I think, are some of the two most important things that we could have if we want to be people of peace in our world. So as I was, again, just kind of reflecting on the sovereignty of God in the book of Ruth, what we see is that God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. This, to me, is like a really comforting thing. Like, Ruth, again, I mentioned this before, like, Ruth is from the wrong place. She's the wrong gender. She's the wrong social class. She's financially bankrupt. Yet God chooses to use her to bring forth David and later Jesus. She is what would have been considered by many to be a crooked stick. And yet God draws a straight line with her. The line of Jesus, <laughs> I guess. You know, like, like, it's a pretty incredible line that he uses to draw. That he uses Ruth to draw. Now, I was just thinking about how we are all to varying degrees crooked, st- crooked sticks. <laughs> all of us. We all have brokenness. We all have wounds. We all have pain. We all have hurt. We all have sin. (laughs) And God can still draw a straight line with you and me. The question is just, will we let God draw straight lines with us? So we come then to God's gracious provision. Right? We see the hand of God, His sovereignty, all over the book of Ruth but we also see God's gracious provision. And here in our passage where I, where I want us to see this, if we go back to verse 13, it says, when he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant and she gave birth to a son. Now, there's a lot of reversals happening at the end of this book that reverse what happens at the beginning of the book. So if you remember the beginning of the story, Ruth is married to Malon, for 10 years. 
and she has had no children. And let's not pretend it's not for lack of trying. They've had no children. And I think what we see here is one of those, the problem wasn't Mahlon. The problem was Ruth. She couldn't bear children. And yet in God's gracious provision, we find this word, and, in verse 13, and the Lord gave her conception. Ruth had been barren, but God opened her womb. Now, can you think of anyone else in the Old Testament where that language is used? Sarah. Sarah in Genesis. I think that the author is pointing us even back to Sarah, who God says, through you, all the nations will be blessed, right? Abraham and Sarah. And they're like, we're old. Kid time is over. Ain't happening. I'm super old, right? And God says, nope, it's happening. And they have a baby, Isaac. And here we find with Ruth, God miraculously healed her and blessed her with children. In our story, we have seen over and over how God has been silently at work in the lives of Ruth and Naomi. But here, in this spot, we see our narrator directly tell us this was God's doing. He is not only blessing Ruth and Naomi, but as we mentioned, through him, he is blessing Israel because David is going to be like the greatest king, right? He's going to be the one all the kings are compared to. He's going to write so many of the Psalms. He's going to be the guy who's called a man after God's own heart. But it doesn't just stop with David, right? God blesses the whole world. Just that we go back all the way to Abraham, right? Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Well, through you and through Ruth and through many others in the genealogy, now all of a sudden, all the nations are blessed because Jesus has come to bring life. God graciously provides us with what we need most. Redemption. He provides Ruth and Naomi with the redemption that they needed, right? They were going to, if they didn't have help, they were going to starve. The land was going to fall to somebody else, like right, like Ruth and Naomi, like Malon and Kilion and, and Abimelech, the, the guys who died, like their family line wouldn't continue on. All of this sort of thing. And there is a redemption that Boaz brings, but that redemption is bigger than even just that moment of redeeming Ruth and Naomi from a physical perspective. God graciously provides us through Ruth in Jesus what we need most, and that is redemption, a complete and whole redemption. Redemption physically, but also redemption spiritually. Now, I said we find three blessings in chapter 4 that all use the name of the Lord, Yahweh. And what we begin to see then is how the Lord has already blessed Naomi, and we see how he will continue to bless Naomi and Ruth forever through Jesus. Now, the only blessing we're going to talk about is verse 15. Okay? May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. Fun fact, that old age actually means gray hair, like literally. Like, so uh, you're just wondering. Um, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Let's just unpack that 
cultural phrase for a moment because that's not something, you know, I've never blessed anybody and said, they're greater to you than seven sons. Like, that's not ever been something I've said. I imagine it's probably not something you've ever said either. So here's the thing. Seven, in, in a kind of our Old Testament world, seven, so numbers and letters are the same, right? They didn't have separate numbers and letters, so letters and numbers, like, anyway, all that to say, numbers mean things often um, when we read our Old Testament, and the number seven is a number of perfection, right? God made the, made all of creation in six days, and then he rested on the seventh, right? Which is why we have a seven-day week. And like seven, anyway, is a really important number. It's a sign of perfection. But also, if you were a Jew living in that time, the ideal family, it would have been said, would be seven sons. Sorry, ladies. Seven sons, okay? Not saying I agree with it. Just saying that would have kind of been the, uh, been the idea, okay? So when they say, when they, these women say you, that Ruth is more to you than seven sons, you cannot imagine. That speaks volumes about, the, about Ruth and the blessing that God has provided Naomi with. Seven was a number of perfection. Sons were more desired than daughters because they carried the family name and the legacy And so we need to see this statement for as powerful as it is, for what it is, what they're really saying. And then we find the climax of the story in verse 16. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. This this is the climax of the story. It's not the marriage when Boaz and Ruth get married. It is when Naomi is handed the baby. Now, do you guys remember back to week one? It's okay, probably not. But (laughs) in chapter one, verse five, we can turn there real quick. In chapter one, verse five, we learn about the loss of Naomi, the pain that she feels. And it says that both Malon and Kilion died. And this, this was, these were her two children. And it left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. And we talked about how that word there for sons is a really specific word. It doesn't just mean a child. It's like my babies, right? As a mom would say, and I, and I pointed this out, like, you know, that like Alyssa always tells our boys, like, you know, and, and I'd say the same thing sometimes too. Like, you'll always be my babies, Right? So, like, there's an extra tinge of pain in that sentence when it says that Naomi lost her babies. These aren't just anybody. These are her babies. And it's a very specific word, and that word is yaled. Yaled. Now, wouldn't you have it? We find that word one more time in our story. Ruth chapter 4 Verse 16, Naomi took the baby, the Hyaled, in her arms and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. Here we find a reversal from empty to full. The tragedy of losing her sons while it is not, that's not gone, 
That still happened. She now has a baby in her arms again. One to carry on her family line. One to care for. She has a baby again. God has provided for Naomi. Naomi arrived in Bethlehem bitter and empty. And now we find in this verse 16 that Naomi is full and pleasant again. The story has come around full circle. She is pleasant and she is full. And here's the thing, guys. God desires for his people to experience life to the full. He desires for you and I to be full. And so he works, as Paul says in Romans, and we've brought this passage up a couple of times over the series. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's Romans 8, 28. But life to the full. Do you know that's what we see? We see Naomi now full. It doesn't mean she hasn't experienced brokenness. It doesn't mean she hasn't experienced pain. It doesn't mean she's forgotten it all. But now, once again, she is full. And one passage that we have quoted so many times in church is John 10.10, right? Where Jesus says he came to bring life and life to the full or life abundantly, right? That's what Jesus came to do. He came to bring that full life and to offer it to you and to me. That's what he came for. But you know what's interesting? Before he says that he came to bring life to the full, he's using this picture of like sheep and all this, and he says that the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Okay, within this metaphor, he says, that's what he says, the, she, the, the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And I think that is what we've seen in chapter one. That's what we see. The brokenness of our world is here because it's full of, A, broken people. But since sin, our world has just become more and more broken. As people have moved east, more and more east of Eden, if you want to use like John Steinbeck language there, there's more and more brokenness in our world. That since Genesis 3, things are not the way that they're supposed to be. That Paul talks about how there is the prince of the powers of this world at work bringing evil and pain and suffering. The thief seeks to kill and to destroy. But Jesus comes to bring life. And that is what we see throughout the book of Ruth. We see two people just experience the pain and the brokenness of this world in all its reality and all, you know, it's so human what we see in in chapter one. It's so relatable and understandable. But what we find in chapter four is the fullness that God desires to bring. Naomi and Ruth, what we find in chapter 1 is that they don't lean on God because they can't. What we find is that they collapse on God because they have nowhere else to turn and nowhere else to go. And I think for you and me, when we fall on Christ, 
When we finally come to the end of our rope, where we can't just, you know, lean on Jesus. He's not just our co-pilot or whatever. Like when we actually finally just collapse into the lap of Jesus and we cannot do anymore. We are at our end. We are broken. That is where Jesus brings us and he takes us and he brings us into his life and life to the full. When we stop trying to do it on our own, when we stop thinking, if I just chase this one more thing, you know, or, or like, it's like when we are at the end of our rope and we have nothing left and we're falling off the cliff and we just reach for that branch, that is where we find life. When we collapse into the arms of Jesus. He can move us from empty to full and from bitter to pleasant. Now, this is not a guarantee that like everything in our physical circumstances are going to be wonderful. Like I know plenty of people that look a whole lot like Jesus that have suffered a great deal. And if we remember, Jesus also suffered a great deal. So there's that, right? So there's no promise, right? And Jesus says, if you follow me in this world, there will be many troubles. This is no, in no way a guarantee that like, you know what? From now on, you'll just be whistling as you walk down the street. Everything's going to be wonderful. That all of a sudden our physical circumstances will just be great. This is not that promise. But what can change, what God can change, what God can bring is a change to our disposition and he can bring peace into our lives. He can bring peace into our lives. Now here's the thing. You know, I've said it's not a guarantee that the physical suffering will will end in our lives here and now. But again, if we go skip all the way to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation, right? What do we see? An end to all of that. Pain, suffering, tears. Like when Jesus comes back and he conquers the the thief, the brokenness once and for all, puts an end to it, destroys the one who destroys. (laughs) There's an end to that. But in in that midterm, as we lived in that in-between, what we can receive, the fullness that we can experience here and now is the peace of God that Paul says passes all understanding. That is available to you and to me right now. When we put our trust in Christ, in His gracious provision, in His timing, we can endure and indeed thrive even in the midst of the worst circumstances. And I've seen it, guys. I've seen it. I've seen people suffering a great deal who still had the peace of God. And it is incredible. It's not just that, you know, I, I hope that like when that time comes for me, because Look, suffering comes for all of us at some point or another. When that time comes for me, I think I'll have that peace too. I, I hope as I follow Jesus, as I walk with him and know him more, like experience that peace. We can endure and indeed thrive. Peace comes when we say, you are my God and I am one of your people. And so what we find is this last scene is so beautiful only because we know everything that Naomi and Ruth have been through. There's a beauty to the end of this story because we know everything that they've experienced. And guys, here's where I want to finish. That same thing is true for you and me. Do you know, we're going to sing some songs here in a few minutes and we're going to praise God and sing to Him together. Right? And what I love about Scripture 
is that the Bible does more than just give us the mountaintop experience, right? We, get, we, we don't just get chapter 4. We get chapter 1 as well. The Bible doesn't just give us a mountaintop experience. We get the full experience. And when you and I, you know, we can relate to that because when we experience that full experience of suffering and of difficulty, when we get to that mountaintop, it makes it all the greater. One of my favorite artists, John Van Dusen, I, I, I was listening to a podcast where he was talking and he says this, just because your relationship with your creator has been restored doesn't mean you're going to escape suffering. Even the most privileged, protected people will experience suffering. But here's the thing, guys. The reason that we're able to sing about the mountaintop of life with God, the reason it makes sense is because we know the hell that we've had to experience to get there. Many of the things that we've had to endure to get there. Like you know all the things you've had to experience that God has brought you through or is bringing you through. And so we can sing the praise and glory to God because we know what God has brought us through. We can see what God has brought others through and we can trust even in the midst of our suffering that God will bring us through and that ultimately he will set all things right. God is working things for your good, but it is not for your good alone. It is so that you may share your experiences and your experience with others, so that the wisdom you have gained, the movements of God that you have experienced, the testimony that you have lived can all be used to draw us closer to him and to be a blessing to the world, to be people of peace, a church of peace, people of peace. So I hope that the book of Ruth in that way has been helpful to you. It's been helpful to me. It's so encouraging. I love the book of Ruth. I said that at the beginning. I think it's like, it might be my favorite Old Testament book. I love it. It's so powerful, and I hope that it can be a powerful reminder to you uh, too. So with that said, let's pray.